This is a special episode of Effing Shakespeare, recorded in collaboration with the 2021 AWP Conference and Book Fair. We're thankful to be the official podcast for AWP for a second year and have invited a gallery of guests that you don't want to miss out on. As always, please subscribe, rate, and review so we can continue to bring you interviews of amazing writers sharing about their amazing work. Enjoy. I'm Jessica Cole. I'm Fulu. I'm Kate Martin-Williams. And this is Effing Shakespeare. By writers. For writers. Amy Bender graduated from UC Irvine and teaches at University of Southern California. Her books have received accolades from all over. New York Times, LA Times, McSweeney's, everywhere. Her latest novel, which was published in July 2020, is The Butterfly Lampshade. Um, when I was rattling off the list of Bender's books, all of which I've read, all of which I love and have been meaningful, me, meaningful to me as a writer and a person, Kate deadpanned, I see. So she's basically taken all the best titles from the universe. <laughs> Welcome, Amy. So kind. <laughs> so I'll just start from the beginning. Your debut short story collection, The Girl in the Flammable Skirt, came out a few months before I started my MA in creative writing at UC Davis. Mm. And my cohort was just abuzz with the possibilities of your writing, where metaphors came to life so believably in a sustained way. And unlike Kafka, you were alive, a woman, a young woman, and you're fantastic in both senses of the word. Metaphors kept opening and unfolding as if the cockroach had continued to morph. Your stories and later your novels showed me that story could not, didn't have to fully be based on realism and still be considered literary, which I really hadn't been exposed to before. Then I, I read more widely and knew that you weren't the only, only one, but you were the, you were the first in, in my reading life. Now I've gotten to know the butterfly lampshade, which is extremely beautiful and seems completely written for this time, <laughs> whether you meant it to be or not. Would you start us off and read a little bit of it? Sure, absolutely. And thank you for saying that. There's something so meaningful about hearing about your personal experience of reading something. That's just really nice. Thank you. So I'm going to just read for two-ish minutes of chapter eight, which is a short chapter because it kind of explains the project of the character and therefore the project of the book, which is that, that it's a young woman about 26 looking back at a transitional point in her life when she was eight. And so she's kind of trying to conceive of this point in the book. She's been thinking about her mom who had a psychotic break when she was eight, or not the break, but a psychotic episode. So there had been other ones, but this one was kind of more extreme. And so there'd been, that's when she, what she's referencing when she talks about this at the beginning. I think of this now from the balcony of my apartment in the depths of the San Fernando Valley where I live on the third floor of a sand colored stucco building about a 10 minute bus ride from my aunt and uncle's home. I've lived here in this particular apartment for three years and have stayed in Los Angeles for nearly 20. One afternoon many months ago on a day of nothing notable except a certain familiar emptiness rolling out at its edges inside me, after walking home at dusk from my managerial job at the framing store down the street, 
which I had taken because it was maybe of interest to me, business, although I disliked the place and the hours and the act of constant framing. I'd settled on the balcony, eating a bag of potato chips, gazing at a couple of leafy orange trees, remnants of a bygone grove. For whatever reason, something was unusually quiet inside me that day, looking out as if some new space had opened up for a moment, like a rotating door revealing its slim aperture of access to the outside. And through this opening, an image had slid into my head, steady and true of what it had been like on the playground in Portland at Lewis and Clark Elementary those many years ago. There I was, eight years old, standing by myself in the middle of the playground, totally still with the windy air, the diamond pattern fence, the melting cracker taste in my mouth, tracking. How the other kids running around thought I was still frozen from some long past game of tag and on the way back to class had swatted my shoulder to unfreeze me. From the balcony, I could see someone walk out of a store and someone walk into a store and cars pulling away from the metered curb and new cars gliding into place. My apartment was near the corner, so my scope of view included pedestrians stepping into their cars on Chandler and a glimpse of Victory Boulevard and all the commercial activity there. It was a cloudy afternoon in July and the blasting heat of summer had not yet fully baked the valley into brown, so the hills still showed swaths of rolling green patched with bands of blazing yellow. I ate my bag of potato chips and sat next to the small succulent plant in its terracotta pot left behind by a previous tenant and for a moment felt myself living inside both times at once. Why had the memory risen up right then? I did not know. It was overall a scattered time in my life. I was 26 years old. I went to my framing job nearly every day and stood behind the counter and took orders and offered opinions on metal versus wood. I filled up my Friday and Saturday nights with activities initiated by others. I attended a few dinners in which I and another person eyed each other as potential mates after a recent breakup with a fellow whom my aunt and Vicky had asked about almost constantly with delighted winks in their voices. But other than my continued weekend outings to yard sales to hunt for items to sell online, it all felt like further performances of participation, just as I'd experienced in the third grade classroom, sitting at a table and talking and joking with the other students as if I were there. I inhabited none of it, and the sensation I was recalling right then on the balcony the memory of standing still and paying attention until that hand arrived on my shoulder of the girl calling Francie's frozen again and all the kids laughing. This memory evoked something different, something else, like catching a whiff of a fragrant long ago scent from a far off and regal country. I hadn't even minded being teased about standing so still like a lump. It had been sweet, the teasing. It had never stopped me. On the balcony, a breeze blew over my face and cars stopped at the red light and then moved forward at the green light and the memory of the playground began to slip, the hand releasing my shoulder, freeze tag over, body disappearing into time. Then I went inside, threw out the potato chip bag and made some plans for the weekend and forgot again. So you write that Francie looks for small things to hold on to, handrails to find, and most often they're, they're objects, not people and they're objects that she's imbued with a certain kind of, you know, she's granted basically an elevated status of, of some kind for good or for ill. I'm wondering, I'm just so curious about, about your process and, and who, who first gave you permission to, to do that? I mean, the fact that you did it so, so young and so early in your career right away there was, I have a very creative mom who was really encouraging of strangeness. Mm -hmm. And that definitely helped. She 
was teaching modern dance and choreographing modern dance when I was a child. Mm-hmm. We go to a lot of modern dance concerts and they were really, really weird. Yes. There were people barking on stage. There were, you know, there was just a lot of that. And we would, and she just like the arts to her are a language of communication and love. So, so it really felt like that. Like I remember we saw Blue Man Group once and we drove home and we were just like drumming the car and it was a communication. It was a kind of intimacy between me and her, but it was nonverbal. So there's something like, although writing is the medium by which I like to make stuff, I do feel like it's wanting to drop down to some place that's not verbal and try to let that inform the language that gets used. So it's a little more primal in some way. It's hard Mm. to explain. A lot of sense. I guess certain teachers and and just that fee- and books I've read and art that I've seen where you just feel like something shows you that there's there are no limits on the things we can do to express our experience and there shouldn't be because our experiences are so layered. Right. Yeah. It was it was so incredible to have your book as this kind of talisman because I was so s- steeped in in realism and. And I love realism. There's a lot of wonderful stuff there. I feel like you never retread either. How do you constantly evolve your form to, I mean, this, this book has, is so much about mental health to put it in quotes and to reduce it to the most plotting language possible. <laughs> but how do you keep your finger on the pulse and adapt your form at the same time? Or is, are those two things sort of co-evolving? I mean, it's nice to hear you say that because I think there are also people that will just be like, it's similar territory, you know, (laughs) and I'm aware that it's similar territory, but also I think the thing I believe so strongly about writing is that you don't really pick what works. And so, you know, like I'll be trying so many things and then one of 10 will start to feel like it has something in it that has some, that has some resonance. And I can't, force the other ones to have resonance you know like you can't make something layered it just is or it isn't and so so because of that it feels like there's certain area you know objects relationships connections and misconnections and you know parents families like all this stuff feels like I like to hang out in that area (laughs) and the sort of blurry line between imagination and reality and also when that can become dangerous for someone like it does for Francie's mom and and at times for her So I just, I guess I just really like spending time thinking about all those things. So I'm glad to hear you say that. And I, I think it's mainly that I feel, I sort of believe that the writer will, will tend to naturally push herself because we're not going to write the same thing again. Like you're always going to write it in a slightly new way because you're living a life and things are changing and the way you process the material changes. Right. So it just feels like, sometimes I'll have students who will be worried that they're writing the same breakup story or something. And it's like, well, why not? You know, like eventually you're going to write the breakup story. Yeah. I mean, breakups are important to write about and they may get larger and the scope may change or it may narrow and deepen. Like there's all kinds Mm -hmm. of ways to approach it. Yeah. I think that's one of the myths of possibly of creative writing programs that it always has to be new ideas. And I think the, the impetus is probably very, I know it's, it's, it's in, you know, good faith and good intention to experiment. And, you know, here you are in this, this space, but right. Sometimes we only have four stories that we're going to tell in a myriad of ways. And that's also totally cool. 
Right. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Why not? I mean, some people say like, you just have each person has a limited amount of preoccupation. It's like, we just, because <laughs> that's who we are. And what's interesting is it's not like I think about objects all the time in my, you know, waking life, my non sort of writing life, but they're just clearly affecting me and I'm think processing them in some way. Yeah. I feel like we all, we all are. And, and that's, I think what was so illuminating about, you know, first reading your work and then reading and reading everything since that, it reminds me that that I am and that we all are and that I just tend to as observant as I supposedly am I <laughs> I don't consider objects as much because I'm so obsessed with someone's eyebrow you know going up in a certain way you know? totally. <laughs> but speaking of spaces like MFAs and so you're currently the director of the creative writing and literature program yes I'm not anymore. I did it for six years and it's now the wonderful Dana Johnson, who okay. I'm doing a panel with tomorrow, <laughs> and a colleague and friend. And so she's taken the helm, which is great. But I did, I did do it for six years and it was, yeah, it was very enjoyable. So I, so Kate and I met in an English department at the University of Tennessee, Awesome. slightly random. And since neither of us are from Tennessee, that's the only thing that's random about it. <laughs> I was in the second cohort of people doing a PhD in English with a creative dissertation. And Kate did a master's in nice. creative writing. Right. So that's where we met. And so, of course, I have great reverence for that, those spaces. And also there was a ton of other stuff overall, like a really incredible experience. What would you say to someone who is thinking about applying or put on your administrative hat for? Yeah, of course. I mean, it's really interesting because it it's so different than an, it's, I mean, it's kind of, it's, it's different than an MFA. No, it is quite different. And so I feel like the students that come in, I mean, it's tiny too, that we're taking like three in fiction a year because we want to fully fund everyone for five years. Mm -hmm. And, and so I think it's a really good match also for someone who's very good at bouncing back and forth between the analytical and the creative, or even merging the two, like a Maggie Nelson, who's at USC too, you know, someone who's able to kind of hold both orbs of the brain in that way. And I think that tends to be like the, maybe the happiest student in the program, Mm. that that sort of profile. But I think mainly because there's, they're taking a fair bit of seminars and their exams and there's like, there's all kinds of sort of concretized hoops for the critical side and less so for the creative side. So it's just really important, I think, for the writers to, to kind of, um, make sure that they're also doing their creative work because the sort of PhD-ish aspect of it right. can dominate. Yeah, I did all one and then all the other. I Interesting. Just, I do that. I couldn't really figure out how to do. Yeah. So you did all one for a certain amount of time and then yeah, so I did over. all the critical, got it out, you know, I just raced through sort of, you yeah. know, a lot of really good teachers because I was so after this I really wanted to write my novel. Then of course yeah. I was done really early and I sat down and I was like, I don't know how to write a novel. <laughs> and you have to kind of like shift gears because you can't, <laughs> I can't at least be sort of knowing what I'm doing as I'm doing it. I have to really sort of be a little bit like Flannery O'Connor's like grain of stupidity. Like you have to yeah. sort of like not really know what you're doing. My advisor quoted that to me, which was, 
my dissertation director, which was so helpful. <laughs> it is. So it's so validated. <laughs> <laughs> so you were, you didn't start the Butterfly Lampshade. Um, you, had, you were probably, at, were you editing during the, the beginning of the pandemic? Bit, or were you, where were you in the process? Because I feel yeah. like this book is so, of its time, is almost eerie. <laughs> Yeah, it was so unrelated, but it was, had a lovely student mention that she was like, at a time when I was sort of creatively unproductive and solitary, it was nice to think about being creative without being sort of overtly productive, like a kind of internal productivity. That was really nice to hear. And yeah, so it was, I wasn't thinking of lockdowns and quarantines at all, but I was, I finished, I think the final draft in February. And then they were just going to like turn it around kind of quickly because it was 10 years since lemon cake. And it felt like maybe that was kind of like a nice number. And I think it just felt like that was a good time. And the election, that was the other thing they were going to aim for fall. And then they were like, no one is going to be in their right mind in November. Right. Right. It's like, so they did July and then. But yeah, then of course, a year ago, March, we were all sort of reeling and trying to understand what was going on. Still, you know, still barely, I still like, I'm so like, yeah, day to day and not not able to get any distance from the experience yet. And speaking of objects, I feel like I went back to your book your books, I mean, Invisible Sign of My Own, particularly for some reason, and particular sadness of lemon cake because now objects were like screaming at me because I'm in the same four walls all the time and and I felt like yes I mean if Amy Bender didn't you know foresee this then (laughs) she knows she just knows (laughs) it was cool I I teach this fairy tale class and I have this undergrad Stephanie Chen who said this brilliant thing the other day so I'll credit her because she said we were reading Angela Carter's Bloody Chamber and Angela Carter has this moment of like the dismembered li- the lilies floating in the greenish water look like dismembered <sighs> arms totally grotesque she said something like it reminds me of what it was like before we had phones and you'd be like at the doctor's office and you just stare at things and she's like, I just don't do that anymore. And it was so wonderful to think of like, what is that state of mind where you just kind of space out on a thing that like gets that, that the phone has become the thing and the phone doesn't allow spacing out in the same way because there's yeah. stuff coming at you. Yeah. So it was just great. And then I had them do like a little writing exercise about like what was something that they stared at when they were a child. Uh-huh. And they came up with great stuff because it's just like what, so I think in terms of what you're saying, like the pandemic heightens maybe the experience that we all had as children a little bit, yes. which was like, you are in a kind of smaller space for a while and you tend to encounter the same objects, but they're imbued and projected upon with so much material that's internal. And so they aren't just regular, they're bigger than they are. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I realized I could learn from my son who's nine, who is really having a much easier time with things <laughs> probably because he has his whole he doesn't have a phone and he has his whole imagination at his disposal and yeah totally like i he's still so you know he's just now you know reading big fat novels and 
that's just thank God he gets to just appear on escape in that. So right, right, really cool. That part is really nice. I have seven-year-old twins and they're like the amount of levels of sort of imaginative storylines that are running through the household. And that, you know, there's rough parts to this for them, of course, but I think that's been so sustaining that like there's the bath storyline. There's the one about the, you know, outside and with the dirt. And then, there's, you know, there's the one related to the TV show. And then there's the one where we're like, it just feels like, yeah, there's a lot, there's a lot of, frequencies. <laughs> I wonder, Amy, you've, you've had this enviable trajectory across your books and your writing career. Is there something that you would tell your younger self that maybe would apply to, we talked to a lot of debut novelists on the show or, or people who are just starting out and emerging. Is there something you would tell your younger self career-wise or with regard to your writing that you wish you had known? Yeah, I mean, I think there's probably a lot of things, but I think one would relate to what Jessica was saying about so meaningfully about that experience of feeling like things didn't have to be so realistic or they didn't have to be bound to realism. That I really had that notion too, that things, that literary writing had to be a certain way to be accepted and respected and so that was so freeing when that got loosened up so I guess some sense of just or even like books that I didn't discover till later if I could have stumbled upon Calvino a little earlier or stumbled upon even like Toni Morrison I feel like is such a model for how to Mm -hmm. use magical I mean she completely there's a feeling with Morrison that you feel like the whole toolbox of a fiction writer is available to her and she will use whatever and that the the breadth and sort of greatness of her ability to go deeply into all of those parts and so I guess I just would have I think I felt pretty bound up for a while and it would have been nice to know I think it just would have been nice to know like write what you like just write what you like kid (laughs) stop this posturing just do what you like you know enough of this faking like fake new yorker story it's no good you like to read and think about like just your metaphors right like you're like okay i'm going to just write things as they are and they're flat and then you know you go where the layers are yeah totally and that all you, we have I, is ourselves. Like that's all we have is our own experience and our own like perceptions of the world. Like that's the stuff. So like use that stuff. And I think it just takes a while. It's like dating, right? Like you're like presenting another person to the date instead of being like, this is who I actually am. It's like dating <laughs> the page where you're like, just be yourself on the page, what that looks like. And it doesn't mean it has to be your experience, but it's your interests. It's your preoccupations. It's just... Mm-hmm. your own I don't think that was taught to us I feel like I as I had some great teachers but I think there was always like a standard you know a certain yeah. standard and and maybe it's also because I have whatever my relationship to authority is and so you know I I perceived things that other people weren't um but I think yeah being it's being a teacher now, I feel like that's the main thing I want to tell my students. Right. Yeah. And I think a lot of the walls have gotten broken down more in terms of genre or definitely 
you know, and that's a big relief. Yeah. Um, but yeah, yeah, I know what you mean. I think there's a and also who we read, you know, the order in which we're exposed to things like you were saying, Toni Morrison or yeah. Alice Munro, that was way later for me. And it was like, yeah. wait, why am I just now figuring this out? And, you know, right. Which, why, why wasn't this earlier? Like, why did I read Somerset Mom? And I, <laughs> I mean, like, what was that about? I don't remember a single word. Maybe really good. Like, maybe I'd like him now, but like, I was 17. Was it really that yeah, important? Yeah. Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, they're, yeah. I mean, I, my, my parents are huge readers, and our house is full of books, but it was their taste, and it was mostly from their sort of college, you know, adulthood. I mean, we had our kids' books, but yeah, it was just, it was, we didn't have the access the way we do now. So, yeah. Yeah. Thank goodness. Wow. Thank you so much, Amy. I feel like I could talk to you for, you know, the entire evening. My (laughs) afternoon, yours. Thank you so much, Jessica and Kate. It just, and yeah, it's just wonderful to be on this and to talk. Thank you so much. It was an honor hosting you. Thanks for making time. Just fun. <laughs> yeah, thank you so much, Amy. Thank we appreciate you. it. Oh, my pleasure. And Lily is clapping her hands. Oh, thank you, Lily. <laughs> and Ramon. This has been a live recording of the Effing Shakespeare podcast by Bloomsday Literary at the 2021 AWP Conference and Book Fair. Effing Shakespeare is a production of Bloomsday Literary in association with Houston Creative Space, hosted by Kate Martin-Williams and Jessica Cole, and produced by me, Fulu. Our trusty and hardworking intern is Sanditi Sadaf. Please subscribe, rate, and review wherever podcasts are found.